0: Can you turn to Ephesians 3, 14-21? <clears throat> Ephesians 3, 14-21. This is a prayer by the Apostle Paul for the Ephesian church. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the Bible. As a matter of fact, Pastor Dave just read it when we were praying over um, Vision of Hope. and um, We're going to read this this morning. See what it says to us in context of where we were last week. This is part two of... The Surrender Serenade message that we brought last week. So, in reverence and respect for God's Holy Word, if you're physically able, will you stand with me right now as we read it? <clears throat> This is the Word of the Living God. Ephesians 3, 14-21 says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever, Amen. May be seated, please. Thank you for standing. I gave out. We gave out here your handout, and you'll see up at the top. We began the first of two could be probably more likely three messages on the surrender serenade we're trying to answer this question biblically doesn't matter what our opinion is it only matters what biblical truth is we're trying to answer from the bible a question that seems that the answer is obvious when you take first pass at it but if we look carefully at the scriptures and see what god has to say about it we might be pleasantly surprised in the beginning of the on the Surrender Serenade, it says, As a born-again believer, here's the question, is the call to full surrender, I'm talking about the deepest level of surrender in the Christian life, is it urged by our Lord or is it commanded? Does it come as a urge, an exhortation, an encouragement, or does it come as a command? Now this is for the believer. This is for the believer. Here's the question we've been asking. We handed out, handed out that question by way of summary. We handed out that question about four or five months ago and got some well, carefully, prayer, prayerfully thought out responses. I would say by and large, though, however, the responses came back that it was commanded. Then sometimes it would say commanded and then you'd change your mind and say, well, wait a minute. And you went back and forth a little bit and I can understand that. But this is an imperative. It's a very, very important question for us to answer. And we tried to answer it biblically last week. We talk about a serenade in the sense that a serenade, the definition of it, is a complimentary vocal or instrumental performance, especially when given at night for a woman being courted. And the reason we call it serenade is because the call to surrender that's issued by our Lord is a swan song. It is a, it is, it is like a serenade. It is like the the husband calling to his bride for a deeper level of commitment and a deeper level of surrender that we've ever experienced before in the Christian life. But you know what? If that call is going to come, we need to know the motivation for the call. We need to know the reason for the call before we can accurately and biblically and truthfully respond to it. Does it come to a believer as a command or does it come to the believer as an exhortation? That's the question. Is it urged? Now, first pass, you'd say, wait a minute, that's got to be a command. That's got to be a command. Hold on just a second. He's Lord. Yes, He is. He's King of kings and He's Lord of lords. You better believe it. He is. But we talked about it time and again. That our, listen to me now, our salvation is not secured by our surrender. Our salvation is secured by the surrender of Christ to the will of the Father. He did that on our behalf. Our belief secures our salvation. Then we get in as Christians and we're in the Christian life and we believe on Him and we trust Him as our Savior. Salvation is repentance toward God. And faith in Jesus Christ. And then we come in and God issues a call. He says, listen, now that you belong to me, now that you belong to me, here's, here's what the deal is. I saw you when I found you. Are you ready? Does a, does a lost person seek God? Absolutely not. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. It says no one seeks God. No, not one, it says that a wicked man that the, the thoughts of a wicked man never even entertain God that's what the Bible says in salvation he seeks you but once that relationship happens he slaps a ring on our finger and he, he enters into a covenant relationship then he says okay buddy you can have as much of me as you want but you're to seek me See, I saw you when you were unregenerate and when you were lost in your sins and dead in your trespasses and sins. And I've made you alive. I've transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I've given you a new name. And hey, when you're a male and your name is Lindsay, you appreciate that. He's given us a new name. It's a covenant relationship. Just as surely as He changed Abraham's name from Abraham... To Abraham and Sarah Sarah, to Sarah. He put Sarah. He put His name on them. He gave them a covenant relationship. And He said, now that all that's been done, your surrender didn't purchase that for you. Christ's surrender on my behalf and your behalf purchased that for you. And then He says, now, you can have as much of Me as you want. You can know Me as much as you want to know Me. If you're satisfied with where you're at with God, then you haven't begun to listen to the swan song. He's serenading you and you're not listening. We're paying attention to the prompts of the world. We're listening to the, to, the, to the call of the world, but we're not listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And see, look at our list there. Do you see right there where it says, Paul, I'm going by way of summary. If you want to get caught up with this and you weren't here last week, listen to the message on the podcast. It says, Paul, bond servant called separated the gospel. He's writing to the church at Rome. They're beloved of God, called saints. We made the point that those two lists are identical. Paul is a bondservant. He's writing to people who are beloved of God. He was called. He's writing to people who are called when he wrote the, wrote the book of Romans. And then he said, I'm separated to the gospel. He's writing to saints, and saint means nothing but separated, set apart for the gospel. But the reason the two terms differ so much in the first of the list when bondservant and beloved of God are compared to one another is because Paul's bondservanthood was rooted in his understanding of the love of God. Did you hear it? Paul's bondservanthood, his fidelity, his loyalty to Jesus Christ was rooted in how he understood the love of God. Now wait a minute, you think, wait a minute, Paul is a Christian, a number one super guy, super saint. You know, the big shot apostle, 13, possibly 14 books of the New Testament were written by that man. And yet, you would say, oh, is, did the apostle Paul fully surrender to the will of the Father because of his love for God? Was it his love for God? that motivated him to surrender. It was the love of God that motivated him to surrender. There's a big difference between the two. See, it was his love of God. He understood how much God loved him. And because he understood how much God loved him, in the year of a bond servant, in seven years, in the seventh year, you can go free. You can can do what you want. And he said, no, I stick around and I stay. Why? Why would somebody who's in somebody's servanthood as a slave, after six years, in the seventh year, could go free. What would motivate somebody to do that? The goodness of the one served. Surrender in full measure to the will of God in the life of a believer has nothing to do with the believer or the character of the believer. It, but it has everything to do with what we know of our Lord it's not the love for Christ that motivates us it's the love of Christ that motivates us there's a big difference between the two and so what happened was he said I beseech you to surrender I beseech you to surrender and he issued the call in Romans 12 1 and 2 he issued the call identically in Ephesians 4 the first part of Romans and the first part of Ephesians by way of review last week is doctrine the second part of Romans and the second part of Ephesians is duty and in between the two, there's a turnstile we talked about last week. And that turnstile is Romans chapter 12, chapter chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And it's Ephesians 4, 1. And in both of those, the surrender that's called for is urged, not commanded. The reason it comes on the heels of the first 11 chapters in Romans, the reason it comes on the heels of the first three chapters of Ephesians, is because those are doctrinal chapters that talk about the life that we have in Christ and what He purchased for us on the cross. What are they? They're detailed truth about the love of Christ. And when we begin to understand the love of Christ, the full measure of surrender is no longer even an issue. That word beseech means an earnest call. Look at the verse... In Romans 12, 1 and 2, what's the motivation? By the mercies of God. What's the motivation in 3.19? The love of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. It says, For the love, what? Of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Do you see it? It's the love of Christ. Look at the next page. We just read Ephesians three fourteen through 21 What's the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus? I want you to, I want you to really li- listen to me. We make mistakes in this church. Y'all believe that? We make millions of them. God doesn't work most often because of us. Most often God works in spite of us. And we've made mistakes on the journey, and we'll make some more mistakes. I can guarantee you that. Now, we don't set out to make mistakes, but we'll make some. But can I say this to you? We're committed, committed to only do that which we believe God's told us to do. And we're committed to receive that by seeking Him with everything that we have, through the Scriptures and through prayer, and through you praying and seeking the Lord the same way. And we want it. We want this church to be on the right foundation. We want it to be set right. Because the foundation of a building determines the strength of it. We want it to be biblically based, Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, God-centered, and God-exalting. We want it for His glory. We want everything set in order. We want the relationships right. We want to display and practice by example biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. We want to walk with God. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to love Jesus above all other competitors and all other loves. We want to say no to all of them so that we just say yes to Jesus. We want all of these things to be true in this church. We want to hold each other accountable for holy living. We want to serve the Lord. We want to make a difference. We want to tend to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We want all of those things to happen in this church. But let me tell you this right now. If every one of those happen and we hit on all pistons and it's not motivated by the love of Christ, it profits us nothing. This was the state of the Ephesian church. Do you remember? The Ephesian church. You go read it in Revelation chapter two and let's do that. Let's go back. To, let's go to Revelation chapter two. Let's look at this for just a second. We're not going to get through all this today. Would y'all bring this back with you next Sunday? Please, would y'all do that? Bring the, the outline back with you? Look at, look at Revelation chapter 2. I want to challenge you on, on, our, our, on our traditional understanding of God's performance appraisal of this church. This is the performance appraisal of Jesus Christ toward the church at Ephesus. He's the only one who can write a performance appraisal on a church. He's the head of the church and he's the only one who knows the heartbeat of the church. He only knows, he's the only one who knows the reality behind what we see on the surface at his performance appraisal of the church at Ephesus. Now watch this, which is the same letter that we just read from. Are you ready? Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3, 14-21. This same church, this was Paul. This was Jesus' performance appraisal of the church. Are you ready? To the angel of the church, this is Revelation 2, 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus himself assessing his church. I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and you have patience, and you have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Stop there. Stop right there. Let me ask you a question. Just first pass. Forget what you know about the rest of that. Whatever you know about the rest of his performance appraisal, just stop right there. Hang on right there. How would you like it to be characteristic of the church that you attend? Just, I mean, just out of curiosity. How would you like for it to be characteristic that Jesus would say, I know your works, household of faith. I know your labor. I know your patience. I know that you cannot bear those who are evil because you fear me. I know that you've tested those who say that they're apostles. You've tested it. Your doctrine, your faithfulness to 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 sound doctrine is there. And I know you found them liars and you've exposed where there's been error. And you have persevered in circumstance after circumstance after circumstance after being tried and tested. You've got patience and long-suffering that came from me. And you've not become weary. I mean, you, if you labored for my name's sake and you have not become weary. Stop right there. Just out of curiosity. Is that a fairly good assessment of a church? Wouldn't well, you think so? I mean, aren't, there, aren't those are, that's a glowing commentary. If Jesus says that about your church, first of all, it's entirely true if He says it. Amen? And if He says it, it's true. And we go through there. And boy, if I was the pastor of that church, I'd be going, man, Hallelujah. Bring it on. Yeah. You know, you ever got a good performance appraisal? you just can't wait to get it? You know, I used to tell my employees all the time when I was in the banking business, your performance appraisal should never be a surprise to you. If I've managed you right. I said, by the time we get it this time, if I haven't dealt with whatever i zing you with before now, that's on me. So he's going, you know, you can imagine the pastor going, man, patience we behave. Jesus is proud of me. And boy, it takes a real serious turn in verse 4. This pastor, who I could see would be puffed up, beginning in verse 4 and following, was brought low. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the only one who knows this information, And he prompts the Apostle Paul to pray on behalf of this church. Think about it. Right? Because the prayers that get answered in heaven are the ones that originate there. And so the Holy Spirit guides the intercession of this Apostle. And is it any wonder that the Holy Spirit guided the Apostle to pray Ephesians 3, 14-21? Because that was their greatest need. Oh God, Heavenly Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, would you do this? Would you so move in this fellowship that they would begin to understand the reach of your love? Maybe understand understand the... the length and the width and the height and the depth of it to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge doesn't it make sense that he will be praying for the Ephesian church that very thing and doesn't it seem rather punitive doesn't it seem harsh doesn't it seem extreme for a church that's hitting on that many pistons for Jesus to say if you do not repent of this I am going to wipe you We can get it right, be doctrinally this, that, or the other. Pop up our pride, and think, wow, we've got it going on. And Jesus said, You know what though? If you do that for any other motivation, except for the love from me, I don't want that duplicate. I don't want that spread. I want that cut off. Can I say this to you? This church was in modern day Turkey. That's where it was located. The most Muslim church, the most Muslim nation on planet Earth is not Iran, Iraq, Pakistan. The most Muslim nation on the face of this earth is Turkey. It was where this church was located. Are you hearing me? are you hearing me? You understand? We better make it our business, Saint, to get into the Scriptures and find some measure of delight, in some measure of childlike wonder, as we plumb the depths of God's love. That word first love," this is what I'm going to challenge you on your understanding of that. I believe that that first love does not mean their love for Christ. I mean, it, I believe it means first love from. Him. Are you ready? First John four nineteen says this We love him. Because why? He first loved us. You have drifted away. Hey, method Method has 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 replaced a meaningful relationship between me and you. Protocol and Procedure has replaced passion for me. The Christian life is about right, being rightly related to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's about a relationship. Eternal life is not a time frame, it is a condition. This is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God, in Jesus Christ and now. Can I say this to you, friends? The only way that we're going to get back to first love, and the only way that first love passion is going to run red hot through the life of a believer, is purposely spending time to plumb the depths of God's love through His Scripture as He reveals it to us. And what will He show us? He'll show us the cross. He'll show us this. He'll show us this. He'll say, "You know what? You know what love's. Da- you know what? You know what love's daring to do. Love will be stretched as far as you can conceivably stretch it, and it's still out there." Exceeding your stretch, when somebody betrays you, and you you put confidence in somebody and they let you down, you look to Christ and you will find that His love is there and beyond. When you're misunderstood by somebody, when you feel like you've been misrepresented, or unappreciated, or rejected by somebody, or maybe you express love to somebody and they haven't returned back to you. And we coy into our safe places, and we get into our safe places of refuge because we're thinking, "I'm not going to try that again because I got burnt this time, <coughs> and I'm not going to get burnt again. I'm not going to expose myself again." We begin to expose ourselves, test it, and see. <coughs> Stretch God, try him. And wherever your moment is of greatest disappointment, let me tell you where you'll find it. the love of God is right there. You can't out challenge him. You can't outdo him. You can go nowhere where He won't find you. That's what the height and the length and the depth and the width mean. Don't be afraid for it to be challenged. Don't be afraid to go to scary places. Don't be afraid for your security and the things that you think undergird you or taken away from you. Don't be afraid in those times. Because only the reason, the only reason, the only reason that God would let that happen to you is so He could meet you at that place and you could understand His love in a way that you never could understand any other. Can I say this to you, friends? And some of you in here have been deeply hurt by others. Some of you have been deeply hurt by relationships. Some of you have been deeply hurt by people you trusted a bunch. Some of you have been betrayed. Some of you have been called upon to forgive. And it has taken everything out of you and then some. Some of you have been called on to forgive and you refuse to. And you're wallowing in it. Can I say this to you? Listen to me carefully. If we don't get another thing, just, just, just listen to this right here. You cannot deeply love until you know you are deeply loved. You cannot deeply love until you know you are deeply loved. See, then relationships become not about what you can get from them. become about what you can give to them. And we'll see when the Holy Spirit begins to flow and pour that into you. Here's what happens. If we don't understand that, we think that love is a risk. I'm out there now. I'm out there. And I might not get this back. It might not be reciprocated. It might not be appreciated. And Jesus looks down at you with just loving eyes, understanding, and says, you know what? I know what that feels I know what that's like. I have been there. Let me tell you this. Go there. Because I'll meet you there. As a matter of fact, I'll walk with you. I'll hold your hand. I'll hold your hand. And I'll let my love be displayed through you. I'll do something through you you could never do on your own. I'm going to take you to a place spiritual you've never been before. And few get to go. Because most of them say, no, 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 no. His love can't be that good. It can't be that good. First love is not love for God. It's love from God. When we begin to receive it, it'll fill you. It'll fill you. And it'll fill you to overflow it. And what'll wind up happening is it'll get all over everybody else. It's messy. And it'll spill out on everybody else. And you'll just be able to enjoy it. And they'll be able to have a shot at seeing the real legitimate Jesus through your life. Because if we've ever lived in a time in which Jesus needs to be seen. It's now. It's now. I'm going to pray. And we've been praying. And we asked last Saturday night. Sunday night. We were together at the Oglesby's house. And we asked you. Would you pray Ephesians 3.14-19. through over yourself, your family, and this church. And Pastor Dave, I said, email Dave and just say, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. And he's been receiving the emails all week. I'm in. We're all going to pray like this. I am. I'm in. I'm in. We begin to pray that over this fellowship. We begin to receive. If we really begin to understand how deeply loved we are, we, brothers and sisters, can deeply love. And we can deeply love, and that's the only thing that counts. And Jesus will multiply that But he doesn't want his works seen unless they're motivated, fueled, and empowered by love. That's why he cut that church off.